Well, as we have already learned through our series in the letters of John, towards the back of your Bible, as we've already learned, John is an old man when he writes this letter. He is an octogenarian. He is more than 80 years old. And in his grandfatherly wisdom, he writes a letter to be read in the churches of Asia Minor, what we know as modern-day Turkey, for in Colossae and Laodicea and Smyrna and Philadelphia and Thyatira and Ephesus. John happens to be based in Ephesus, and he writes to protect these churches, in particular his church in Ephesus. He writes these letters to protect them from the onslaught, which is exactly what it was. It was an onslaught of false teaching and cultural pressures that began eroding their faith and the assurance of those believers in these local churches. And so he writes, John writes to turn their attention back to the gospel and back to the gospel's implications for their lives and back to the promise of assurance that they will find only in Christ. <coughs> in in his letter, there are a number of critical themes that we're going to discover again and again for our lives. We will see God is light, God is love, love one another, do not love the world, and genuine faith is proven by our obedience. All of these themes we will see, are, they're intricately woven together. We just don't go from one theme to the next, but they're, they're woven together throughout John's letter, and you will see these actually in John's gospel. And these are important themes. These are critical themes to our Christian life. And what you will notice is as we go through this letter, we will hit some themes again and again. And you may think, well, Larry or Jevin, didn't you already give that message? We've heard about God is light. And I want you to know, um, if, if we do, in a sense, seem repetitive at times, that's because God is being repetitive. And God is speaking to you about something that maybe this time you need to hear something a little differently, or this time you need to hear something. And so the Lord is using this and using John's writing and his repetitiveness to serve you. So be aware that this is, is happening. But all of these themes, they're, they're intricately woven together. They, they, they fit together to give us a, a big picture, a complete picture of our Christian life. Each Christmas, Marilyn puts together a jigsaw puzzle that my kids buy for her. It's a family tradition. They buy her a jigsaw puzzle for Christmas, and on Christmas Day, she starts putting it together, and all during the day and the week that we're with the kids, as people walk by, it sits on a table, and they just, they just put it together. And what makes it possible to put these puzzles together, because the kids get these really weird puzzles, is the picture on the box. If I did not have the picture on the box, if we did not, we would have no idea what this thing is supposed to look like. You, you could do with the borders. The, I mean, you can start with the borders, but then everything else sometimes just gets lost. And, and so it is, it is a difficulty to try and put it together if you can't find the box and, and where's the picture. And, and sometimes one of us might hide one piece um, just to create a little tension in, in the puzzle during, during Christmas. 
Like the picture on the box, John shows us a complete picture of the Christian life so we can know how it all fits together so that we might be assured of our salvation and so that we might live wholeheartedly for Christ. Now, that was not a gunshot, right? Great. Okay. We can move on. Good. I see people all looking that way. I don't see any bodies falling, so that's really good. Turn with me to John's first letter and read along with me as I begin in chapter 2. John, 1 John 2, and it'll be verses 1 through 6. And the title of this message is that you may no, and that is a phrase that you will see again and again in John's letters, that you may know, that you may know, that you may know you are assured, that you may know you are Christ, that you may know you are born again, that you may know you are in the love of God, that you may know you are his, that you may know you are forgiven, that you may know how to live in the light of God's love, that you may know. So look with me in verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you that... We have this day for this church to gather together as a family to hear your word and to be transformed by your word. And that is my prayer this morning, that your grace and your spirit would work in the lives, the hearts of every person in this room to be transformed more into the image of your Son as they hear you speak through your word. Lord, give this group faith to hear from you because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And Lord, may they, at the end of this day, think high thoughts of you because you are a good and gracious God. And help me, Father. Help me to care for my church through preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. John begins this chapter by saying, I write these things to you. My little children, I am writing these things to you. What's important for us to remember 
is that he writes as a father. This is of deep affection. My little children. Now, John, as an octogenarian, as a man in his 80s, he can get away with, in a grandfatherly way, my little children. He sees these men and women in the churches, particularly in the Ephesian church, and he says, my little children, I write these things to you because I deeply care for you. More importantly, this is crucial. He, he writes as a father representing our heavenly father. Hear the words of your heavenly father who is ultimately speaking these words to each of us. And, and not only this morning, but every time we pick up this Bible, every time we read these words, he is speaking to us because these are breathed out words. As we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God. John has penned these words at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John has penned these words. He has penned the words that God has breathed out. And so as we read these, these words, I am writing these things to you. I want you to hear God saying, I am writing these things to you this morning because he is a good shepherd who cares for his flock. John is a good pastor who serves as God's shepherd in caring for the flock of this church. And so God is speaking. And my big idea, as Devin puts it, I use the more theological word called proposition, which Devin might have a hard time saying, so he used his big idea. (laughs) My big idea this morning is this. Because of Christ's sacrifice and its ongoing effect on our lives, we can overcome sin and live like Christ. Because of Christ's sacrifice and its ongoing, that's crucial, its ongoing effect on our lives, we can overcome sin and live like Christ. And my three points this morning is John's God-inspired hope. We will read about John's God-inspired hope. We will read about John's God-inspired promise. And we will read about John's God-inspired assurance. And the reason I say God-inspired is because although John writes these words, they are breathed out by God. They are God's words. And we will find some of these words at times very challenging, but yet I believe they will be hope-filled because God has written them. And there's always hope in God. And God is faithful to his words. And so this morning, as we read these words, as we study this passage, it is God breathing out. It is God speaking. It is God being faithful to his word. It is God bringing hope to you in his word. So let's look at the first point. And that is in verse 1. And I'm going to say verse 1a, the very first part of this verse. John writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Wow. These are stunning words. I write these things. Now, in context, he's talking about what he had just said in chapter 1, uh, verses uh, five, 5 through 10. 
but he is also talking about, in general, the, the, the letter as a whole. He says, I write these things that you may not sin. And here's the Is it possible, is it actually possible not to sin? Is what John's saying here, is it realistic? Can we live our Christian lives and not sin? Those questions are come begging when I read that passage. I write these things. I am writing these things so that you may not sin. That is not my experience. So what is John saying here? And these are understandable questions in light of our own personal experience of battling sinful temptations and at times the discouraging defeat we experience with sinful temptations. Is, is John overstating this? Well, as a father writing to his children with the deepest affection, it's John's personal and pastoral wish that we do not sin. But we also see from the body of Scripture and the context of this book that John is a realist. If you remember in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is a realist. And what John is doing here in this passage this morning is he's offering hope. This is John's God-inspired hope. Not one of unattainable idealism, but hope by his readers, those who read this, hope by the power of God's Spirit that we will battle sin and will have an attitude, the attitude that Christ has to live for the glory of God. We will fight against sin. That's John's hope. That's John's God-inspired hope that we will battle against sin. Rather than us asking questions of John, is this possible? John is asking questions of us. Is that what you want? Are you desirous of not sinning? Do you have the courage and fortitude to declare, never shall I yield to this temptation? Brothers and sisters, if our only hope in this life is to be secure in the knowledge of our eternal destiny, but not transformed into the likeness of Christ, our sin will not upset us. And it will not upset us as it should be. And our lives won't glorify God as they should. John, John is after here a humble attitude of the heart, not an unattainable perfection. His fatherly hope, his God-inspired hope, is that we live a life of wholehearted devotion courageously and fiercely battling temptation and sin, not yielding, not quitting, and not growing cold in our love for God. John is not preaching a doctrine of sinless perfection in this verse, but a doctrine of transformation. 
a doctrine that we have a growing hatred of sin and a doctrine that we have a growing life in Christ. This kind of life, John says, and this is one of the overriding themes of this letter, which is the theme of assurance that these believers, their assurance is being attacked. And so John is writing to them to remind them of who Christ is and what Christ has done and who they are and where they stand before Christ. And he wants them to be assured so that when they get old like me and the days are shorter and you're on the back nine of life, you are more assured than when you started on the front nine of life. He wants these folks to be assured. He's not preaching a doctrine of sinless perfection, but a doctrine of transformation. That is God's inspired hope. He wants us to have assurance that our faith in Christ is genuine. We're going to get to the practicals in a moment, but first and foremost, he wants us to know where he's coming. Now, Point two, which is John's God-inspired promise. John has a God-inspired hope that you live a life that would be free of sin, but that you live a life in reality that you battle sin and you overcome sin. And now he goes on in, in verse 1, part B. But if anyone does sin, so here he just jumps right into the realism. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is one of the greatest statements in all the Bible. If we sin and we do, there is a divine remedy for our sin sick souls. If we sin and our conscience and our heart condemns us, as John says it will later on in in chapter 3, verse 19, we have a promise, a promise that is anchored in Jesus Christ. We will be forgiven because of who Jesus is. Who John says he is in this passage. He says Jesus is our advocate. He is our righteousness and he is our propitiation for our sins. He uses the word advocate here. The word advocate means helper. It's the same word used in John's gospel when John speaks of the Holy Spirit coming and being your helper. The one who will lead you and guide you and help you and convict you. And John tells us in his gospel that that the father will send a helper in John 14, 15, and who will be there to, to be with us always, to dwell in us. And in this letter, so we have this helper who is dwelling in us. But in this letter, John is saying, listen, we have an advocate. We have a helper who is dwelling in heaven. He's an advocate in heaven. When we sin, And our heart and our conscience condemns us. And when we feel guilty in God's presence because of our sin, and Satan does accuse us because he's the accuser of the brethren, we have an advocate. John knows we struggle with these things. He knows we experience condemnation. He knows we experience guilt, and rightly so. Because our sins do accuse us. Satan does accuse us. And so John, in his wisdom, reminds us that the gospel stands 
tall and majestic above our sin. The gospel is a person. Our Savior lovingly stands before God, interceding for us, speaking to God on our behalf when we sin. The moment we are aware of our sin, we must be fleeing to God, to the one John calls Jesus Christ the righteous. Robert Murray McShane said, I feel when I have sinned an immediate reluctance to go to Christ. I'm ashamed to go. I feel as if it would do no good to go, as if it were making Christ a minister of sin, to go straight from the swine trough to the best robe, and a thousand other excuses. But I am persuaded they are all lies direct from hell. And that is what John is teaching us here. That if anyone does sin, we go somewhere. Because we have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, that is the next thing. He is our advocate. He pleads before God. He stands before God. He intercedes before God. He is our helper before God. But he's also Jesus Christ, the righteous. John calls him it, it's so, it reminds me of, of one of the Narnia books, um, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, where at the end of the, the, the book, Aslan declares, gives, gives these titles to each of the children, to Peter, he says, Peter the Magnificent, and to Susan, Susan the Gentle, and to Edward, Edward the Just, and to Lucy, Lucy the Valiant. And it's a, it's a poignant moment in the movie as you watch that, as these titles are given, because they mean something. And here, John, in his letter, says this, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who's also the magnificent, who's also the gentle, who's also the just, who's also the valiant. But here, he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. What does Jesus advocate for us? As the righteous, he tells God, Father, I have suffered for this sinner. My righteousness is now his forever. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He's our advocate. He is the righteous one. Douglas O'Donnell says this, as the righteous died for the unrighteous, 1 Peter 3.18, so now he lives for the unrighteous. It is a tremendous thought to think that Jesus, because of his love for us, died for our sins. But it is also a tremendous thought to know that Jesus has never stopped loving us or lost interest in our situation, that when on the cross he cried, it is finished, he was not finished with us. He will never be finished interceding for our sins. What a comfort and what a joy. He is our advocate and he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And thirdly, John tells us in this verse, he is our propitiation. John informs us why our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, can plead our case and forgive our sin. He died for our sins. 
He died for our sins. Propitiation is a very important word in the, in the New Testament. As sinners, we, we rightly deserve judgment for our rebellion against God. Not only does our sin re- require judgment, but it also appropriately deserves God's wrath. Think of judgment as in a courtroom where you are judged for a crime and you are found guilty. Think of wrath as the deserved punishment for that crime and being judged guilty. There's always a cost to sin and a payment is always required. Jesus Christ, the righteous, removed God's wrath. He removed God's wrath against us by dying on a cross in our place and in payment for our sin. God's wrath destined for us was poured out Scripture says it was poured out upon Jesus, not sprinkled. It was poured out. The wrath of God came like a flood upon Christ. It was poured out upon him. And as the sinless one, Jesus, who was perfectly righteous and wholly acceptable to God as a sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the world, God declared it acceptable. He was a propitiation. And here in John's letter, propitiation just doesn't mean the bearing of God's wrath. John is thinking more broadly of the atoning work of Christ, the forgiving work of Christ, the justifying work of Christ. This is John's God-inspired promise that we have an advocate. We have the righteous one. We have a propitiation when we sin. If we sin We have this. And so his point is this. Look, there should be no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Look who stands here. Look who lives for you, interceding before the Father. When you sin and you feel guilty, great. Do what he said earlier. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Run to the throne. Don't flee from the throne. Don't listen to the lies that say, don't go in. Crush the lies and run to God. Run to the advocate, run to the righteous, run to the propitiator. It's not just for our sins, but John writes for the sins of the whole world, which is a whole another message in and of itself, but it's simply that it is available to the whole world, to those who embrace it. Douglas O'Donnell says this, he said, the cross is great enough to cover everyone. And its benefits can be enjoyed by all who embrace the saving work of Jesus. So this is, this is the promise we have in these verses. That when Jesus stands before the Father, and he does, and he says, I died for them. The Father says, how could I ever forget you died for them? And how could I ever forget and fail to forgive them? Charity Bancroft's hymn says it so well. It is a hymn most of you are familiar with. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. 
She goes on to say, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Brothers and sisters, no matter how you have struggled and fallen and despaired, you are not beyond his forgiveness. That is John's God-inspired promise. And finally, John, God-inspired assurance. Now, these truths in verse 1 and 2, they are the basis of our living now for Christ. What What John is about to do is to dive into deeply the practical. But he wants to make sure before we move into the practical, he wants us to make sure that we are in the in the spiritual, in a sense that we understand the, the, the indicative before we get to the imperative, that we understand the grace of God before we get to our issue of here, obedience. God-inspired assurance. We can be assured that if we live like Christ, we belong to Christ. That is what John is after in this section. That, brothers and sisters, if you live like Christ, you will be assured that you belong to Christ. Verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Notice the repetitiveness. No, no. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You cannot get to these three verses without first one and two. Being aware that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, and we have our propitiation. And now we can get to this section, these indicatives moving us into the imperatives. Now, let me pose two questions from these last three verses. How can we be sure that we know him? How can we be sure that we belong to Christ? Well, in verse 3, John answers that question very clearly and very firmly. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Our obedience is the real evidence and our hope of assurance that we are Christians and that we belong to Christ. If we know him, we will obey him. Now, John is being radical here. Obedience to him is not a now and then thing. It's not to be considered lightly. It is wholehearted, uncompromising, unwavering, fiercely pursued, and joyfully perfected. Let me offer you a a stark illustration. If a husband says to a wife, yeah, yeah, you know, I just, uh, I occasionally glance, long glances at other women, and I occasionally just lust after other women, and I occasionally have an affair on the side, but I, I love you. You're mine. Or a wife says to a husband, 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to other men. And, you know, on occasion, yeah, we, we go out on a date. And, but I want you to know I'm yours. Would that fly in your marriage? We're married to Christ. The requirements, the expectations, the passion and the purity of our relationship in marriage should characterize our relationship with Christ. Wholehearted obedience, brothers and sisters, is the basis for our assurance. We obey his commands. And in this letter, John focuses on two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And and, in keeping God's commands, it's a prominent theme in John's writing. In his gospel, in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, so this is just an, an extension of John's gospel. He's, he's repeating himself, but, but also when he talks about commandments here, he's thinking in the broader ethical terms, moral terms of the, of the Bible, keeping the commands and being obedient to the Bible as a whole. And in these three verses, John addresses both the wider obedience and the specific um, that whoever keeps his word, as we see in verse 5, um, those are the ones who are assured. And so he is, after, he is after that we are obedient to his commands. In particular, in his letter, John is after our love for God and one another. Love is the capturing theme here. John makes it clear in his gospel 1512, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. John is speaking of ethical, moral, and practical obedience. And he's talking about how we speak and how we act and what we allow our eyes to see and what we allow our minds to think and what we allow to be entertained in our hearts and just simply how we live day to day in this world. John writes that keeping God's commandments is how we truly know him. Our faithfulness to keep his commandments tell us of our assurance in him. And yes, When we do sin, we go back to verses 1 and 2. But if we sin, and we go back to chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins. But John's laid out something far more greater as a goal. In verse 4, John goes on to say, okay, keeping your commandments, he says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Fatherly, as fatherly affectionate as John is, I want you to know he is also fierce in his fight against people who limp along in their faith. Saying one thing and doing another. Saying this in verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. He says they are a liar. Now, my all-time favorite movie is a movie that every person in this room, mostly the younger folks, can quote verbatim. Um, So if I get it wrong, just teach me afterwards. But the kids gave me this movie for Christmas one year because I love it so much. But there's this one scene in The Princess Bride, and it is with Billy Crystal, and he is uh, Max the Miracle Worker, and he plays a 
like a little Jewish guy, which I really love. I think it's hilarious being Jewish. I kind of identify with him. And uh, a mutton sandwich. For the, he's just, see, you could just begin to quote everything. But there's this one scene where um, uh, the, the, who is it? It's Wesley is laying on the, on the, on the um, table and they, they try to get him to come to life and you hear him say, true blay. And Billy Crystal goes, true blay. He's not saying true love. He's saying to bluff. He was playing poker. And, and, and then all of a sudden his wife comes in, liar, liar, liar. And he goes, get away from me, witch. I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. And, and you... <laughs> I've watched it way too much. <laughs> but the liar, liar, liar in the movie, this is how strong John's statement is here in this verse. That's how strong it is. Remember this. Remember, John was known as one of the sons of thunder. And do you remember in Luke 9, John and James asked Jesus, shall we call fire down on this Samaritan village because they've rejected you? (laughs) That's who John is. So just as he is this affectionate father, he is also this son of thunder. And when you read in this verse, whoever says I know him but does not keep the commandment is a liar, liar, liar. That is what John is after here. That's how strong he is. If we do not obey Christ's commands, we should have no assurance of our salvation. That's how strong John is here. If you are not obeying Christ's command, you should not be assured of your salvation. Then verse 5, keeping his commands... He goes on to say, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Truly the love of God is perfected. Now listen, keeping his commands is not a condition of knowing God. It's not a condition of your salvation. It's not a means of salvation. It's just a clear sign and indication that you are saved, that you do know Christ. This verse Five is said in contrast to, to verse 4. What, what John is saying here is that our love for God is perfected as we obey him. And the more we obey, the more we love Christ. The more we love Christ, the more we glorify Christ. And finally, in, John, in verse 6, John closes this passage by describing the deepening of our relationship with Christ as we faithfully obey his commands. In verse 6, he goes, whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same manner in which he walks. Now, earlier it says that in verse 3, and and by this we know that we have come to know him. And now in verse 6, we're talking about abiding in him, this relationship as we obey his commands, as we pursue Christ, as we battle sin, we come to know this one who is our advocate, this one who is the righteous one, this one who's our propitiation, this one who stands before God in love and intercedes saying, Father, forgive them because I have forgiven. John wants us to follow his disciples, completely dedicated to the way of Christ. And if we do this, we can be assured that we belong to Christ, which is John's great desire. 
John has this God-inspired hope that we flee from sin, this God-inspired promise that we can be forgiven of sin, and this God-inspired assurance that we can know we belong to Christ if we obey his commands. David Jackman, in his commentary, helps me end with this. If we really walk in the light with God, our behavior will become more and more like that of the Lord Jesus. It is not that we obey God's commands in order to make ourselves good enough to walk in the light with him. That is the cul-de-sac called legalism. Rather, those who truly walk with God love to obey him because in that way they grow a little more each day. That is the high road called grace. So I close with these questions. And I ask you to just think about these questions this week as you go home. How deeply do you desire to become more like Christ? How can you cultivate that desire? Let me encourage you one way in which you cultivate, actually two ways. You cultivate that desire by time with God in his word and time with God among his people. You do it here and you do it here. How deeply do you desire to become more like Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that speaks truth to us, that speaks hope to us, that speaks conviction to us, that instills faith in us. Lord, thank you that you have shown us today how much you love us, that your son intercedes for us. Lord, may every person here go home today at peace in the knowledge that their Savior speaks for them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And let me close with our benediction this morning from Philippians chapter 1. This is your pastor's prayer for you. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Love you all. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.